take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. take a look at the last section of not only Romans 8, what, what many would consider a, an, an ending point for what has been the larger argument of chapters 1 through 8, then with chapters 9 through 11 being their own contained topic, and then chapter 12 uh, picking up and uh, giving us then real-life application of the gospel uh, to day-to-day realities of life. But as, as we look at verses 31 through 39, we, we certainly uh, see, you know, Paul's climactic words, the real crescendo now uh, is, is blaring at us from this text uh, as we see what is, what is the great conclusion uh, of this explanation of the gospel. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and who furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What guarantee do I have? How do I know you'll keep your end of the bargain? How can I be certain that you'll make good on your promise? These are usually the kinds of questions we ask to someone who's made us a promise it's hard to believe made some kind of a guarantee. It it could be in any kind of walk of life, any kind of situation. Uh, It it could be somebody promises you a product will make your life better than it's ever been before. Take this pill and you will lose 500 pounds right now. (laughs) Right? Buy this knife and you can cut a foundation in half, right? Because sometimes there are products that are pitched to us. And we want to know what kind of 
guarantee. Perhaps you have somebody who, will, who says, I promise I'll, I'll do this amount of work for this amount of money, and you're skeptical of both, and you say, guarantee do I have that this will be successful. Again, it's the kind of question that we ask when, we're, when we are skeptical, and, and we live in a culture where it's, it's helpful to be skeptical, right? I mean, there are a lot of folks out there trying to scam us. There are a lot of people out there trying to rip us off. There are plenty of folks who will make us a promise, hoping that will encourage us to act, and they have no intention of fulfilling said promise. What we have looked at up to this point in Romans, and, and, and more than just the last few verses we've been slowly and methodically kind of unpacking over the last few weeks, I mean the entirety of Romans going back to chapter 1. Going back to that ominous opening text of Paul's argument for the gospel that warns us not of God's great love for us, not of God's great mercy, not of God's great grace, but Paul's first words about the gospel, God's wrath is being revealed against all mankind. Now, undoubtedly, Paul's first words in Romans 1 are striking and disturbing. And then he goes on for three chapters to paint a disturbing portrait of humanity. So much so that at the end of chapter 3, verse 20, we are left with nothing in and of ourselves to be rescued from God's just condemnation. Then we have beginning in verse 21 and and really going all the way through chapter 6 at least, Paul's then marvelous and majestic explanation of how only God in Christ by faith as a result of His sovereign grace can we come out from under that just wrath. Then Paul goes on to describe that not only does God in His grace save us from His own wrath, allowing Jesus to bear that wrath in our place, but then our salvation continues to reap benefits. God in His grace continues to sanctify us, to make us like Christ. He continues His ongoing work by by means of His Spirit to, to bring the gospel to bear in every nook and cranny of our lives. Even in those moments as Paul distresses about where, where we struggle with sin and we, we say there's this law that's at work within me. I want to do the right thing, but evil is right there. And sometimes, though I want to do right, I, I do what's wrong. And then we've, we've been in chapter 8 where, where Paul talks about the, the goodness of God to us and the Spirit, the assurance of salvation the Spirit gives to us. How in that same Spirit then we are afforded Grace and mercy and comfort, even in the, most, in the midst of terrific suffering. And then we've spent a lot of time with verses 28 through 30, where Paul kind of brings all of this. He's, he's ramping up. It, it, it is the big finish, right? It, 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 is, it is gearing us up for what are going to be tremendous words when he tells us that all things work together for good 
to those who love God, the called according to His purpose. And then he strings together this chain of redemption where he tells us that God has been working to save us since before we even knew there was an us to be saved, whom He foreknew, He predestined, whom He predestined, He called, whom He called, He justified. And the certainty of salvation is so unshakable and unbreakable that Paul even speaks in the past tense to say, those whom he has justified, he has glorified. It, it, it is a profound explanation of the glorious gospel that God has done all of this, not for good people, not for folks who deserve it. He's done all of this for those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. And I get through verse 30, Maybe you get through verse 30, and I can't help but ask the question, what guarantee do I have? Is this really true? Can I be certain of what he just said in verses 29 through 30? What what, what is it that should give me such confidence? How can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the salvation that He started in me is the salvation He will complete in me. And in fact, for a lot of us, we may even wonder, quite frankly, I can do all kinds of dumb things even after being a believer. Is it really possible for me to think that not only will this salvation extend throughout my lifetime, but that there is no way for me to be anything but a son of God forever. How can I be certain of this? Paul kind of puts it differently, maybe not so straightforwardly, because obviously Paul would be absolutely certain, but verse 31 then of Romans chapter 8, Paul then says, what shall we say to these things? How do we respond to this? What, What can possibly be said about all of this? How do we follow this up? And when when he says these things, by the way, I think he's referring all the way back to chapter 1. Though Paul is certainly going to pick up themes that we discussed in verses 18 through 30, I think this is Paul's transition to his final statement on what is the glorious conclusion of the gospel. What is it that God has guaranteed and how can we be guaranteed of it? And to put it simply, the reason you and I can be absolutely certain that no matter what comes in our life, no matter what we do or others do or circumstances around us do to us, no matter what, God's love for us is unfailing. And I don't know if that makes you kind of breathe a little sigh of relief, right? Because to me, It's pretty great news. And quite frankly, we couldn't have gotten here in the same kind of profound appreciation for God's love were it not for chapters 1 through 8, verse 30. Rather than beginning his gospel presentation with love, which is what you hear a lot today, Paul does it right. He begins with wrath and sin. We've got to know there's something we need to be saved from before we can talk about God's love in saving us in the first place. But what a fitting conclusion. As Paul draws this this explanation of the gospel to its conclusion, 
He reminds these folks here in Rome the reason why they can be certain of their salvation is because of God's unfailing love, eternal security, certainty that not only am I saved now, but will be saved forevermore, and that this is unbreakable and unshakable, that I cannot, after being saved, lose my salvation, that there is this thing called the perseverance of the saints. The reason why that is the case is because salvation is not my work before I get saved or even after I get saved. It is all motivated, sustained, grounded in God's love for me, and nothing will ever change that. This is the grounding of my security. And so Paul is going to kind of dig into this. We can live in confidence and faith because God's love for His people will never fail. He's going to give us four reasons. Four reasons why this is the case. And we'll take our time going through these. Paul does something in these verses he's done before. He likes to ask questions that answer themselves. So he's going to, there's going to be a bunch of them in here. In fact, even the first one, what shall we then say to these things that this is kind of a favorite, Paul's used this phrase before to transition and bring to conclusion points that he's made. And as I said, I think in this case, he's bringing everything he's talked about to its conclusion. And now to make his point, he's going to string together a bunch of questions. And as we've identified them before, these are rhetorical questions. That doesn't mean it is a question that requires no answer. Some have identified rhetorical questions that way. Really, a rhetorical question is one where the question is asked so that it answers itself. The question is the answer. You're asking in the form of a question as a way to get the individual to think about it, perhaps a bit differently and a bit uh, with a bit more depth than normal. All right, but that that is uh, that is the nature of Paul's uh, argumentation and how he's going to lay out. What are, what are these reasons for our confidence? So if you want to take notes, they're going to be in your outline. We're going to look at four of them because I think the text kind of hinges on four key questions, though there are, there are actually seven, but four of them I think are the primary ones. So the first reason why we can be confident in God's love, because God love, God's love overcomes that which tries to oppose us. God's love overcomes that which tries to oppose us. So, look then at uh, the second half of verse 31. His first question then, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us, who can be against us? And, and, And in a sense, what you can do, especially in the original language with the word if, that can also mean since. That's kind of the context in which he uses it. He's not really giving a hypothetical. I mean, he's not suggesting, well, maybe God's not for you, all right? He's saying, since God is for us. And what, that is the only natural conclusion, by the way, to verses 29 and 30. If whom he foreknew, he predestined, he predestined, he called, and he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. If that's so certain that he speaks about it in the past tense, when it says, if he is for us, what could God be other than that? If God has done that, if God is for us. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Again, what is the natural then answer to this? It's the natural answer. If God, since God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? 
Well, no one, right? In other words, if the most powerful being in all the universe is the one who has worked to your benefit and good, if he is the one who is no longer your enemy but friend by virtue of the gospel, then what other problem is there that could possibly challenge that? If God is for us, who could be against us? Now, at this point, it is important to remember this draws kind of its significance from the fact that Paul's opening words about the gospel, as we just mentioned, Paul's opening words about the gospel really give us the flip side of this question. In other words, take that question, if God is for us, who can be against us, and kind of flip that around. If God is against us, who can be for us? If God is against us, if the other side of this question is the question, if God is against us, then who can be for us? This is the heart of the gospel, by the way. The primary issue that I face in my life Apart from knowing Christ as my Savior, if I don't know Christ as my Savior, this is the reality. God is against me. We put it this way when we were in chapters 1 through 3. I made a comment, and I think it was somewhat shocking to some folks. So let's make it again, all right? Because that was a year and a half ago. Not everybody in this room was here a year and a half ago, all right? So let's do it again. If you were to be asked the question, or any random person on the street were to be asked the question, what's the greatest threat to humanity today? Well, you're going to get all kinds of answers, right? Some may say terrorism, war, poverty, natural disasters, global warming, Lack of education? Liberalism? That one may be close, all right? But otherwise, the. I could have said a lot there, right? Okay, I didn't. That's not the shocking statement, all right? Of all of these, they're not the answer. Now, some may then say, oh, well, I know where you're going, preacher. It's unbelief, right? Sin, right? Unbelief and sin, that is the greatest threat to humanity. It's not. The single greatest threat to humanity, bar none. There's no second place. This is not opinion. This is the clear teaching of Scripture, though it may be shocking. The single greatest threat to humanity is God Himself. Are you serious? You ask Adam and Eve. Who were they afraid of after they sinned? A talking snake? I don't think so. Did they hide from each other? Nope. You ask the folks in Noah's day. Was it the natural disaster that was the real problem? Nope. It's the wrath of God. You ask Sodom and Gomorrah. Who was the greatest threat to their existence? 
Ask Israel. Ask Judah. Traipse on down there to Egypt a few thousand years ago and ask them who was the single greatest threat to their civilization. Give the Apostle John a call someday and ask him what he saw that was going to happen in the future. Who is the single greatest threat to humanity? It's not Satan. It's not sin. It's not unbelief. The single greatest threat to humanity is God. And if you and I don't do something about the fact that we are born an enemy of God and unable in our own power to do anything about being an enemy of God, then we will face the same consequences as those in Noah's day, as those in Sodom and Gomorrah, as those at the very end who do not know Christ. You will know what it means to be an enemy of God. God is our single greatest threat. Much more than any of these other things. Church, let me encourage you to remember that. As you watch the news, as you listen to political commentators try and tell us what is and isn't wrong with our nation, I will tell you what's wrong. We are doing those things that are consistent with being enemies of God. The single greatest threat to this country is God Himself. No doubt about it. That, that is the flip side. That is Romans 1 through 3. The good news is, Romans doesn't end in chapter 3, verse 20. Wow, what a terrible book that would be, right? In other words, you're not coming back to hear that, okay? If it ends at verse 20, and we're dead in our trespasses and sins, you know that whole passage where he says, our our mouths are like open graves, okay? In other words, where he says, we're nothing but dead, rotting corpses inside. That doesn't get you coming back, right? Week after week. Because then the good news then that Paul then explains is that God, though we cannot do anything about God's wrath against us, God can. God has worked to be for us. He's done that in the person of Jesus Christ and allowing the one and only Son to bear the penalty for sins He did not commit for people who should face that punishment instead. So, so when, when we see this opening question, if God is For us, who can be against us? That's a great question. It's a question that answers itself. If I begin in chapter 1 with the reality that God is the single greatest threat to humanity, and as a result of the gospel, I have now removed that threat from my life, now just the opposite is the case. Now, the single greatest benefit to my life is that God is for me. This is number one in everything about my life. God is for me. So who can oppose that? Who can oppose us? Who out there is, more, is powerful enough to switch that? At what point could somebody come along and turn that back around? And let me give you the best news. This, by the way, you're in a Southern Baptist church, so you're going to get a lot of eternal security stuff, all right? I was going to tell you now, I don't know what all traditions everybody came from, and I, and I love you. 
That's always dangerous, right? What always follows, I love you? It's the three-letter word, but. Okay, all right. I, I love you, but if you think you can lose your salvation, there is a deficiency in the understanding of the gospel. I don't say that to be ugly, by the way. I know it sounds that way. I don't mean it that way. I mean it to say the Bible so clearly describes what it means when the gospel takes root in my heart that there is no other option because it's not like God suddenly is against me, then He becomes for me and does for me what I cannot do for myself, but I somehow then commit some other kind of sin that then God says, nope, I was for you, now I'm against you again, and you better get back on my side because if you're not on my side, things are going to get bad. In other words, there's no text that ever says that. The only way the gospel is ever described is like this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Not even you and the knuckle-headed things you do sometimes, all right? That can't even be against you. If God is for you, there's no meaningful, legit opposition. It's not that there aren't attempts to oppose you. They're just not legit. Why is that the case? Notice what he says in the next verse. Verse 32 then explains this very clearly. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Notice the word spare and delivered. This is, kind of, this is judicial language. This is the language of the court, right? I mean, if, if you have a criminal in front of the judge, and he may cry out, spare me. In other words, it would, it would be a formal attempt, especially in this day, a formal attempt to get leniency from the judge. What does he say here? Paul's making a classic greater to lesser argument. He's going to make a really wow statement in order to show that the next thing obviously has to be true. He who did not spare his own son showed no leniency and mercy to Jesus Christ. But what did he do? Delivered him up. See, the the word delivered is, is like to be handed over, to be passed over for sentencing and punishment. Understand how God functions in this. God functions as both judge and bailiff and executioner. God delivers the sentence. God hands him over to the sentence. God unleashes the sentence. This is God doing this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up handed Him over to be punished for our sin. That word, He delivered Him up, it's another important piece of information we've noted before in the book of Romans. I think it was a couple of years ago, the well-known news anchor Bill O'Reilly wrote a book called Killing Jesus. Some of you may have read it. If you read it and thought it was really great, this is going to be tough. All right, but I'm just, but if, but if you did, you know, he did, he did several books, Killing, I think he did Lincoln, I think he did Kennedy, then he did Killing Jesus, all right? His conclusion in Killing Jesus is that Jesus died as a result of political conspiracy between Romans and Jews. This is, he got caught up in the political furor and controversy of the day, and he was kind of the guy stuck in the middle. Now, He may be really smart when it comes to politics, but that theology is terrible, all right? 
And here, here's why. Because Romans 8.32 makes it plain. Who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? God is. God is. God delivered Him up. God was the one. It was God's will. Jesus Himself even said, I did not come to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. What was the will of the Father? Was it to be a really moral guy like the culture thinks? Was it to be a guy of love? That's what the culture says His purpose was. That was not His primary purpose. The primary purpose of Jesus Christ was to be the one and only sacrifice for sinners who could do nothing about their own sin. It was to do the will of the Father, which was to be the Lamb who would stand in substitution for wretches such like us, so that in Him our unrighteousness would be imputed, and to us His righteousness would be transferred. The reason why God came was not to give us some kind of model, but to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is both appease the wrath of God and provide salvation for sinners like us. God delivered him up, handed him over. And so then he makes this statement, thinking about all that. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Wow. What an argument. I'm telling you, Paul's one of the smartest men in all human history. The way he writes Romans, brilliant, brilliant. Because he, he, he has you there. The argumentation there is flawless. The logic there is flawless. If God did this, what? The most extreme thing you could think of. The most extreme action you could possibly think of. If God did this, then surely He would freely, and that's the language of grace, by the way. The root word is the same word that we get grace from. Freely give. An, an abundance of grace then. Out, out, of, out of His own grace. How would He not then freely give to us all things? Now, by the way, when He says all things... That doesn't mean your own island in the South Pacific and a brand new car. All right, when he says all things, uh, it, does, it doesn't mean whatever, you know, nutty health, wealth, prosperity stuff that you hear out there these days. To give us all things, to give us all that we need, as Peter says, for life and godliness. It, it, is, it is to provide for us every resource necessary in order to ensure, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it forward to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, to freely give me all things is to give me all that I need for life and godliness, for living the Christian life, for sustaining in the Christian life, for guaranteeing my eternal security. God's love overcomes that which would try to oppose us. And it's important, by the way, to keep in mind when it says if God is for us, who can be against us? Don't think of that as if God is in my corner. It's kind of the wrong way. I, I know we might want to say, well, this means God is on my side. And to be sure, that is the case. I mean, God is on our side. But some people conjure up in their minds like a boxing match, right? We even have the phrase, if you're in my corner, what does that mean? You know, I don't know, you're the guy with the spit bucket. I, you know, I don't know, it's kind of a weird image. I understand Sunday morning before lunch. Okay, I get it, okay. But, but that's, I think, the image I hear conjured up. You know, that I'm, I'm the, the boxer, which I clearly, even just doing this, I'd be terrible at. All right, so, so I'm the boxer, and I got people in my corner, right? I got, 
you know, my family and friends and church and God. God. God's not the water boy in my corner. When it says God is for us, it doesn't really mean God is on our side. It means God has put us on His side. Think of it more like a king. We now have a king who is benevolent, all right? That king is now for our good. If God is for us, who could be against us? How could there be any challenge? Now, next week we'll get to the next question. In fact, we'll probably get to a couple of them next week. As as we continue to, to think about what Paul is saying here, about eternal security, about the the absolute assurance, our guarantee that what he has said in verses 28 through 30 will in fact come, come to be. Are there any challenges that could keep that process, that golden chain of redemption from happening? And Paul is going to conclude by saying, well, no. No, there's, there's literally nothing that could possibly oppose this work of the gospel in our lives. But for now, as we have a time of invitation, as we have a time where you can respond, we're going we're to sing one of the great songs of the faith, Only Trust Him. Many of you are going to be familiar with this. Uh, I love, though, the, the opening words of the song and then its chorus. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord, and He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Simple but beautiful words. So my, my challenge first is to anybody here who may not know Christ to save you. I cannot save you. You cannot save you. But God can and will be for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice all things are freely given in who? In Him He is the one and only way. If you have never confessed that you are a sinner, unable to save yourself, if you have never then trusted Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead, if you have never asked God to forgive you based on nothing more than what Jesus has done for you, then I would implore you to do that today. If you'd like to know more about what that means to trust the gospel, I'll be down front. What does it mean to have a certainty of salvation? You can have that. It is a promise of the gospel. Even after the service, if you'd rather take some time and you need to talk with me, I'll be available. would love an opportunity to do that. Perhaps for you, though, as a believer, maybe these have been difficult days for you. Maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years. So the good news is, is that no matter what may be floating around the sphere of your life, God is for you. And maybe there's a burden on your heart and you'd like to come and you'd like to kneel here and you'd like to pray. You'd like me to pray with you. I would do that. Maybe you'd pray where you are. And just trust that no matter what, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him, us for, delivered him up for us all. How will He not also give us freely all things? You can trust Him, whatever you're facing. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, this time will be open to you. Father God, we do thank You for gathering us. We thank You for the certainty of Your Word. We thank You for the promise of the Gospel. We thank You for the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank You, God, that You are for us in Christ. May we rest in it. May we take great joy in it. Know that You and Your goodness have done all that is necessary to make us right with You. 
have your way then in our hearts as we then sing and respond. May it be uh, an offering of our lives to you again in service and obedience and all to the glory of your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.